Well, good morning. Let's, uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for your love for us and uh, grateful for uh, the gospel, grateful for uh, your word, which is not only authoritative and inerrant, but is also sufficient. And so uh, with it, we can analyze ourselves, and uh, with it, we can analyze our culture. And so I pray that you would help us as we uh, seek to do that this morning, that uh, you would give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear uh, what your scripture says, and then also um, just kind of how uh, the church is to respond to the current cult cultural context. And so we pray these things with hope and expectation in Christ's name. Amen. All right, thanks for coming to Theological Equipping Class. Uh, this morning we're going to be talking about postmodernism. We've been talking about church history uh, for the past year, and so today we're talking about postmodernism. Why are we talking about postmodernism? Because postmodernism is really the air that we breathe. It's the water in which we are swimming. It's the kind of the cultural current uh, that is moving us along. If you want to understand why it is that our culture today is obsessed with issues of sexuality, with the rise of the LGBTQ platform. If you want to understand why our culture is obsessed uh, with the topic of race and ethnicity, if you want to understand recent riots, if you want to understand uh, debates over immigration and questions about terms like Marxism and critical race theory, if you want to understand our time, if you want to understand our culture, then really you need to understand something of postmodernism. So why are we studying this? Well, we see an answer in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 12, verse 32, which speaks of men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Notice that knowing what to do often demands knowing the times, knowing the culture, knowing the currents of culture. Imagine that you go to a, a beach and uh, you put down a blanket, you put down maybe an umbrella or something like that, and then you head out into the surf for a couple of hundred yards and then you kind of frolic out there for an hour or so, and then you head back to the beach. Only there's a problem now because you found that your umbrella and your stuff isn't where you left it, or at least it doesn't seem like that because while you were out in the surf, you were drifting you were drifting to the left or to the right, east or west or whatever it might be. And, uh, and so uh, you've drifted quite a bit and you're no longer near your stuff. So how do you get back to your stuff? How do you get back to your family or whatever it might be? Well, you have to know which direction did you actually drift. And, uh, and so that's our goal today, to, uh, to kind of see which way the current is moving, which way it's taking us, which way we're drifting if we're not careful so that we can resist the drift. Our goal today is that we might understand the times in order to know what we ought to do. So to, uh, to attempt to accomplish that, as it relates to postmodernism, I want to try to answer four questions for you. Number one, what is postmodernism? Number two, what is the history of postmodernism? Three, how has postmodernism affected the church in particular? And then fourthly, how should the church respond to postmodernism? Let's begin by, uh, by answering the question, what is postmodernism? If you want to understand it, you need to define it. The problem is that defining it is nearly impossible for a couple of reasons. The first reason is because it's kind of a moving target. What postmodernism means today isn't necessarily what it meant yesterday or what it will mean tomorrow. It's constantly evolving. In fact, that's one of the aspects or attributes of postmodernism. So that's one of the reasons it's difficult. Another reason that it's difficult to define postmodernism is with the very, the, the very concept 
of summarization and definition is, is really antithetical to the spirit of postmodernism. As we'll see, postmodernism by its very nature, it inherently rejects the, uh, the nature of system, uh, systematization and summarization. It's intentionally ambiguous. It's intentionally uh, uh, amorphous. In fact, many of the leading uh, proponents of postmodernism would say they're not postmodern. They would uh, uh, um, uh, officially kind of uh, formally um, repudiate that term. Why? Because they would say that postmodern or postmodernism or something like that is a label that is used to dismiss them. They don't like labels. They don't like definitions and such. That's also, by the way, why you might see proponents of things like critical race theory say they're not promoting critical race theory. So it's difficult to define postmodernism if the leading theorists deny that they're even postmodern. But that's a second reason that it's difficult. Third, because postmodernism isn't just one thing. It's really a family of these uh, diverse but similar intellectual movements. They aren't the exact same. It's a family, and in any family there are, there are certain resemblances. There are certain family resemblances between the various members, but also there are differences. So postmodernism isn't just one uh, monolithic thing. It's a family of diverse movements, and we'll see it's a pretty dysfunctional family at that, but that makes precise summarization and definition really difficult. So speaking of that difficulty, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay in their book, Cynical Theories, which is a really good book. Uh, neither of them are Christian, but, uh, but they are writing on uh, critical theory and its relationship to postmodernism. They say postmodernism is difficult to define, perhaps by design. It represents a set of ideas and modes of thought that came together in response to specific historical conditions, including the cultural impact of the world wars and how these ended widespread disillusionment with Marxism, the waning credibility of religious worldviews in post-industrial settings, and the rapid advance of technology. It is probably most useful to understand postmodernism as a rejection of both, of both modernism and intellectual movement that predominated through the late 19th century and the first half of the 20th, and modernity, the epoch uh, the, uh, known as the modern period, which began after the end of the Middle Ages and in which we probably still live this new kind of, note that phrase there, radical skepticism to the very possibility of obtaining objective knowledge has since rippled outward from the academy to challenge our social, cultural, and political thinking in intentionally disruptive ways. So any definition of postmodernism is going to be somewhat reductionistic, but with that in mind, I want to offer for your edification a definition provided by the Encyclopedia Britannica, they write that postmodernism is a late 20th century movement characterized by broad skepticism, subjectivism, or relativism, a general suspicion of reason, and an acute sensitivity to the role of uh, ideology in asserting and maintaining political and economic power. So what does all that mean? Well, I think it's really helpful to, uh, to think of postmodernism in terms of its uh, main themes or its attributes, family traits, uh, if you will. And, uh, and, and so these are kind of the, the main resemblances. In general, postmodernism is marked by the following eight characteristics. All right, eight characteristics, kind of family traits, things that all of these various uh, movements have in common. Number one is a profound skepticism about whether truth or objective knowledge is obtainable. 
Right? So sometimes you might hear that postmodernism is a rejection of the idea of absolute truth, but that isn't actually uh, entirely accurate. Postmoderns don't say that object- objective truth doesn't necessarily exist. Rather, they say that we can't find it because our interpretation is always biased or colored by our own presuppositions, by our culture, etc. This is why there is such an emphasis in postmodernism on my truth or your truth, but there's not an emphasis on, quote, the truth. So postmodernism is suspicious about any uh, sort of absolute truth claims. That's the first characteristic. A second characteristic is a lingering suspicion of meta narratives. What are meta narratives? Meta narratives are overarching stories that explain everything else. In fact, uh, 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 Leotard, uh, who lived from 1924 to 1998, he famously defined uh, postmodernism as incredulity toward meta narratives. So, uh, again, rather than one story, rather than one truth, it celebrates many stories. It celebrates many truths. That's kind of the idea of postmodernism. There's this suspicion uh, of meta narratives that goes along with their suspicion of our ability to actually uh, obtain objective, absolute truth. A third characteristic is the belief that all cultures and all societies and all individuals, if you will, uh, they, they create these systems of power which determine what can be known and how. So, for instance, if you are paying attention to kind of the winds of culture, uh, you've probably noticed that, uh, that over the past few years, you've noticed that people would say things like logic is racist or punctuality is racist or math is racist or something like that, all right? That those things have all been created by the ruling class in order to oppress those who don't conceive of reality in the same way, those who don't uh, do math, those who aren't punctual, whatever uh, it might be. So they've all been created by the ruling class in order to oppress those who don't conceive of reality in the same way. In other words, anytime, anytime someone makes some sort of claim on the truth, they're creating in-groups and out-groups. And the reason they do so is in order to oppress those who don't hold those same views. They're, they are marginalizing others. So think of postmodernism kind of like this. It's all about the marginalization of the center and the recentering of those who have been marginalized. That's it. That's postmodernism. Take whomever is at the center of power, whites, cisgender, heterosexual, Christian, men, take them, they're at the center, and then push them out of the center. All right, out of influence, out of their, quote, privilege, and then in turn, take whoever it is who's oppressed, minorities, the LGBTQ community, um, women, the poor, the uneducated, whatever it is, and then you want to put them into the center. You want to lift up their voice. You want to give them power, all right? So that's why you have this, this idea of speaking truth to power. You might have heard that phrase over the past few years. The idea is that certain groups have power, and that they use their influence, they use language, they use institutions, they use education, they use all of these things in order to preserve that influence, that power, that privilege. They use it in order to remain in the center. So all of society is kind of like a, a big game of a king of the mountain, if you ever played this when you were a kid. 
And the goal is to get enough people to kind of push the king off the mountain so that you can take his place. So language and logic and justice and so forth, all of those things are seen as inherently systemically unjust. They're, they're a tool of oppression that's used to keep the oppressed on the margins and to keep the center in power. So that's the third characteristic of postmodernism. A fourth is the rejection or blurring of boundaries. Probably the greatest example of this where you've all seen this uh, is in the way that uh, postmodernism, uh, postmodernism has influenced the way that culture thinks about sexuality, right? Whereas uh, feminism historically is going to blur the boundaries between what men can do and what women can do, kind of that Mia Hamm, uh, Michael Jordan, anything you could do, I could do better, 1990s uh, commercial. That's historic feminism. That's blurring the boundaries between what men can do and what women can do. But postmodernism goes even further than this and blurs the boundaries, not just between what men and women can do, but between what a man is and what a uh, woman is. Or you also see this blurring of boundaries as it relates to citizenship, right? There's this blurring of boundaries between uh, legal and illegal immigration. And then there's a blurring of the boundaries between the arts and the sciences. As arts historically are kind of open to interpretation, so that same sort of hermeneutics, so that same sort of idea is applied to science, as art is subjective, so that now there is this view that maybe science and maybe math are subjective or relative as well. So those boundaries are blurred. As, uh, as Pluckrose and Lindsay write, almost every socially significant category has been intentionally complicated and problematized by postmodern theorists in order to deny such categories any objective validity and disrupt the systems of power that might exist across them. That's the fourth uh, characteristic, the rejection or the blurring of, uh, of historic boundaries. Fifth is the reinterpretation and meaning of language. Language is a huge aspect of postmodernism, right? Consider how today words are constantly being redefined. Literally, that's happening. The, the dictionary is, is, is literally redefining historic definitions of words. So historically, racism... Uh, meant actual uh, prejudice, but today it means you might have no prejudice and yet you might still be a racist. Or that racism today means prejudice plus power such that by definition, if you don't have power, you can't be racist, all right? So there's this redefinition of words. And in addition to the redefinition of words, there is this rejection of the historic view of authorial intent. Historically, what a sentence means depends on the speaker or the writer. The writer is the one who gives meaning to that sentence on the basis of their intention. But in postmodernism, today the hearer is the one who determines the meaning. What you, what you uh, meant depends on what I think you meant. That's postmodernism. In particular, for uh, Derrida, who's one of the, the leaders of uh, postmodernism, as we'll talk about, the speaker's meaning has no more authority than the hearer's interpretation. And therefore, listen to this, intention can't outweigh impact. In other words, if I'm offended by your words, it doesn't matter if you meant any offense whatsoever. It doesn't matter if your words are objectively offensive. 
That doesn't matter. Your intent is irrelevant to postmodernism. All that matters is how I felt. All right. That's why we talk about things like microaggression in our culture today. That's why there's such this uh, redefinition of what is hate speech. That's why universities now have safe spaces and so forth. All right. There's this reinterpretation and uh, of the meaning of language. Sixth view, uh, sixth kind of characteristic of postmodernism is cultural relativism. According to many postmodernists, you can't really critique a culture from outside of it because it presupposes that your own culture is objectively superior. All right, that, that flows out of the idea of the rejection of the meta-narrative. If there is no universal truth, or at least there's not one that we can actually figure out, then things like truth, things like virtues, things like values, all of those things are just socially constructed. So who are we to actually critique another culture? Seventh, the rejection of the universal and the individual. That might sound like a contradiction, but it isn't. According to, uh, according to many postmodernists, uh, we shouldn't judge people as individuals or, as, uh, or according to universal categories like human. Rather, we should group people into these subcategories, uh, these subcultures. As an example, take, uh, take racism. All right, according to postmodernism, uh, the solution to racism isn't just to treat everyone as a human, that's to universalize, right? That's not what we want to do, but neither do we really treat people as individuals, all right? We don't want people thinking for themselves. We want them thinking according to certain categories, categories of uh, their ethnic status or their sexuality or whatever it might be. That's when, uh, that, that's, this is why when a, uh, uh, a black person, whenever he uh, or she rejects the BLM movement, they're accused of being an Uncle Tom, or when a feminist liberal, someone who's actually progressive like J.K. Rowling speaks up against certain aspects of the transgender platform, she's canceled, right? I read this past week that there's, a, uh, there's an upco- uh, upcoming Harry Potter reunion and she's not invited to it because she has been canceled because her views, although she is a feminist, she has rejected certain aspects of transgenderism as all feminists should do, but... Um, that's kind of the idea. There's the rejection of the universal. You're not a human and the individual. You're not a person to speak for yourself. You are a black man or you are a trans woman or you are a uh, lesbian or whatever it might be. You're, there is this category and you must think within that category. And then finally, an eighth uh, category or characteristic of postmodernism is the goal of destruction. In light of all of the, uh, the above, the goal of postmodernism is simple, and that is to tear it all down. Get rid of all the institutions that supported uh, modernity's presuppositions, all right? Get rid of capitalism. Get rid of, uh, get rid of the patriarchy. Get rid of the nuclear family. Get rid of Christianity. Get rid of the police. Get rid of universal morality. Get rid of national borders. Get rid of math and the electoral college and the filibuster. You see all of these things in our culture. You start with some statues and tear those down and you keep tearing things down brick by brick by brick. In other words, some of the things that we've seen on uh, the news recently, some of the recent riots in our nation's history, those things are a physical illustration 
of the underlying philosophical goal of postmodernism. Those riots, they're not a bug in the operating system. They're an essential feature of the postmodern operating system. Right? The goal is to dismantle all of the established authorities in order that those who have been historically marginalized, however we define that, minorities, homosexuals, transgendered, immigrants, whatever it might be, in order that those who have historically been marginalized or felt historically marginalized may be heard and given power to speak for themselves. So those are the marks of postmodernity. Again, hopefully it resonates. When you see some of those categories, hopefully you can see how pervasive this actually is. When people oppose boundaries, it has to do with postmodernism. When the transgender community exercises profound political power today, but insists that they're actually victims and they're oppressed, that's postmodernism. When people want to tear down statues and defund the police and redefine language and get rid of math and on and on, that's postmodernism. Right? So if you just watch the news, if you open up Twitter or Facebook, you'll see evidences of this everywhere. So where did it come from? Let's talk about the history of postmodernism. I want to begin with an illustration. I want you to think about uh, history, all of Western history. Historically, Western culture had a number of authorities or a number of sources of authority when it comes to knowledge. This is called epistemology. How do you know what you know? And historically, there were four main sources. For each of those four sources of authority, I want you to think of a certain type of light. So first, how do you know what you know? There is divine revelation. This is a source of authority. And I want you to think of that source of authority like the sun. All right, S-U-N. Second, you have the authority of tradition. All right? So how do we know what we know? Well, because others who are smarter than us or have seen more than us or whatever it might be have gone before us. And so we have the role of tradition. So think of tradition kind of like a string of Christmas lights. That's the second. The third source of authority is you have reason, all right? Reason. Think of that like a uh, light bulb, like in the cartoons when someone has an idea and the light goes off above their head. And then finally, there is feeling or experience. And I want you to think of that like a candle. It's very authentic, very new age. So historically, uh, Western theology, Western philosophy, held to those four categories as the keys to epistemology. How do you know what you know? Because of revelation and tradition and reason and feeling or experience. And by and large, that was the order as well. Revelation comes first because that's primary. Then tradition because hundreds and thousands of other voices should probably be louder than our own. So you have these external authorities before the internal authorities. So revelation and tradition first, and then we turn inward to uh, reason and feeling. Now, if you were here with us when we studied church history, you probably remember in the Middle Ages, there is this battle within the, middle, uh, the Roman Catholic Church over the primacy of revelation and tradition. And what the Roman Catholic Church does is it actually subverts revelation to tradition. All right. They probably wouldn't agree with that statement, but in effect, that's what happens. Tradition actually becomes the arbiter of revelation. So there's this inversion of the historic order. So when the Reformation happens, there is this subordination of tradition to revelation. It gets back to how it should be. The reformers themselves, they love tradition. 
One of the slogans of the Reformation is ad fontes, which means to the sources, not only to the original sources of the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, but also to the church fathers, to guys like Augustine uh, and so forth. And so the reformers love tradition, but there is this unintentional devaluing of tradition among their, their followers. All right, with the idea of the priesthood of the believer, there is this unintentional sort of uh, uh, consequence that is within a couple of generations of the Reformation, there is this devaluing and denial of tradition. I don't need others telling me because I myself am my own arbiter of truth. And so that's an unintended consequence of the uh, Reformation. And so I want you to imagine that tradition, that string of Christmas lights is extinguished. That no longer exists in our epistemology. So now we're just left with revelation, reason, and feeling. A century later, there's another massive movement that upends uh, upends the way that truth and knowledge is understood. We call that the enlightenment, which is really ironic because it actually extinguishes the greatest source of light for our epistemology, which is revelation. According to modernity, which is the outcome of the enlightenment, according to modernity, only that which is rational, only that which is reasonable can be authoritative. That's why the fruit of the enlightenment is deism. It's not traditional Christianity. Christianity has too much of the miraculous. The idea of divine inspiration is irrational to the modern man. So we have to jettison revelation. So imagine now the sun is extinguished along with the, uh, the Christmas lights. That's one of the big marks of the Enlightenment. It, uh, it questions, it denies all external authorities such that now all that is left is the self, right? I think therefore I am sort of idea. So no more revelation, no more tradition, no more sun, no more string of Christmas lights. What are you left with? Reason and feeling, right? What are the two sources of light that correspond to those two? Light bulb and candle. All right, so modernity is all about the inviability of reason and the assurance of progress. Modernity is very optimistic about uh, about reason and about man's ability to remake the world and solve all of its problems, right? And for a while, it seems like there's reason to be optimistic, right? With the advent of modernity comes breakthroughs in understanding viruses and bacteria, the invention of vaccines. We now have a model for understanding the movement of planets, and we can understand things like gravity. Later, we'll have cars and airplanes to connect the world. We have clean food. We have clean water uh, in abundance because we've kind of learned to domesticate the forces of nature to some degree. So modernism is really this profound sense of optimism that man can eventually solve all of the problems of disease, disaster, and maybe even death. And, uh, and then everything is looking great in the 18th century and in the 19th century. But that optimism hits a brick wall in the 20th century. Why? Well, because there's two world wars. There's a Holocaust, there's a Great Depression, there's tens of millions of deaths under communist rule, there's nuclear weapons, and all of those kind of things kind of argue against the idea of unhindered progress, right? More people die in the early 20th century than at any other time in human history. So people begin to really question the idea of unending, unhindered progress. 
We haven't really solved the problem of death. In fact, we've really created the means to mass produce it. We've just made it easier to kill people. So as a result, there is this profound pessimism. And that pessimism is post-modernity. The light bulb of reason, which corresponds to the enlightenment and so forth, that light bulb is extinguished. So what are you left with? You're left with feeling. Right? You're left with a candle, a tiny flickering candle. My own feelings, my own experiences. With a candle, you can't see very far. You can't see much beyond your own preferences and desires, and that's postmodernism. So the term postmodernism seems to have uh, been first used in 1917 by a guy named Rudolf Panitz. And he wanted to describe the nihilism that was, uh, or nihilism, that was growing in the 20th century Western culture. But that sort of idea, uh, idea that uh, nihilism, that, that uh, pessimism was borrowed from Nietzsche. Though, uh, though Nietzsche preceded uh, postmodernism by about 100 years, he was kind of the forebearer. He was the patron saint. He was the voice of one crying in the desert, repent of your modernism, make way for postmodernity. For instance, Nietzsche famously declared, there are no facts, only interpretations. That sounds an awful lot like postmodernism. So Nietzsche kind of plants the seeds of postmodernity and they begin to kind of come up in the early 20th century, but they don't really blossom for another century until uh, after Nietzsche is gone. The terms postmodernity or postmodernism would occasionally be used in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, but it really comes to prominence in the 50s and the 60s as uh, writers like uh, Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida and Jean-Francois Lyotard uh, use the term. What do all those guys have in common? Well, they're French. They're the bane of Ron Swanson's existence, right? Historically French, really good at food and wine, really bad at wars and philosophy, all right? So these guys were French and thus they're depressed. If you were French, you'd be depressed too. And, uh, and so that, that, that depression, that pessimism fueled them. They thought that uh, people are inherently estranged from their authentic self, all right? They're, they're estranged by capitalism for those who kind of took up and, and blended postmodernism with Marxism. There's a lot of relationship there. They're estranged by their, uh, they're estranged by their repressive sexual mores for those who kind of blended together postmodernism and Freud. They're estranged by their religion for all the postmoderns, they would say uh, that. So everyone is estranged by some aspect of society and culture. As a uh, professor, Lawrence Cahoon notes, to diagnose contemporary alienation, they produced an historical analysis of how human society and the human self develop over time in order to see how and why modern civilization had gone wrong. What was needed, it seemed, was a return to the true or authentic or free or integrated human self as the center of lived experience. So notice postmodernism is an analysis of history, society, and the self with the presupposition that something is wrong. But notice that what is wrong is external. It's civilization, it's culture, it's society. And notice that the solution is internal. It comes from the self, the integrated human self. So you see this exact inversion of the gospel. The gospel agrees that something is wrong but what's, what's wrong isn't primarily outside of ourselves. In fact, we are the problem. Sin is the issue. 
The postmodernists recognized something is wrong, but they didn't have the self-awareness to see that maybe the problem is that we've gotten rid of the meta-narrative. We've removed God. God is dead, as Nietzsche lamented. But rather than realizing that the problem is that they've gotten rid of meta-narratives and they've removed God from the equation, postmodernism says the problem is culture and society and so forth, which alienates and oppresses people. It's kind of like calling into a call center for a broken computer and the tech is telling you to just plug it in, all right? And you're like, no, it won't turn on. And he's like, well, yes, you have to plug it in. That's kind of postmodernism. There is a problem. You've recognized there is a problem, but they refuse to plug it in. They don't recognize we are the problem. They don't recognize the problem is whenever you get rid of meta narratives, you get rid of these overarching stories and worldview when you get rid of God. The reason that people are estranged is because you've removed God from culture and philosophy and life. So modernism, modernism was the idea that human reason could one day conquer the forces of nature and could basically usher in this utopian society. So in light of that belief, we see with modernism this rise of the industrial age, the attempt to uh, manipulate industry for the flourishing of society, that man's reason will allow him to have these technological advances and those technological advances will usher in utopia. Postmodernism, though, is going to reject that idea. It says that reason is uncertain and thus it's unhelpful and that truth is unobtainable. So there's this, there's this movement in postmodernity away from the industrial age to the information age. And thus the manipulation of information, not the manipulation of industry, but the manipulation of information is the means to serve the goal of the movement. Right, just think of the past 40 years. Think of the most significant technological advances of the past 40 years. Almost every single one of them would have to do with information. The rise of the personal computer and the laptop, the iPhone and the iPad, the internet itself, email, social networks like Facebook and Twitter, all of those things just kind of serve this purpose. It's interesting historically to see, to, to note how cultural change corresponds to technological advances. All right, there were a handful of other guys we've talked about actually when we talked about the Reformation. There were a handful of other guys with kind of Reformation ideals before Luther. But why wasn't there a Reformation before Luther? Because the printing press didn't exist. All right? The printing press is going to allow for the distribution of Reformation ideas in ways that never before existed. Well, the same is true with postmodernity. All right? Why has it so permeated Western culture because of technology because by and large it's the assumed philosophy of most of our major information purveyors news corporations social media networks tech companies and so forth and not only that but now social media has become our kind of cult cultural means of social currency that's why that's why there's such a rush to to tweet your righteousness before others and you got to put the right hashtag on it hashtag me too Hashtag believe women, hashtag black lives matter, justice for Jesse, whatever it, uh, it is. That's postmodernism. We realize we're estranged. We feel this fragmentation because our worth, our value isn't gra uh, grounded in something objective. We've gotten rid of God. We've gotten rid of a meta narrative. We've gotten rid of the universal worldview. So we've gotten rid of finding our identity in something objective. So we have to look to something that's subjective. We look to others, we look to culture 
to give us approval, to tell us that we're smart and pretty and relevant and so forth. But this lecture isn't really about culture. It's ultimately about the church. So how has postmodernism affected the church? You probably realize this, but the church isn't really on the cutting edge of anything. All right, we tend to be a couple of decades behind culture on most things. You think of Christian music and Christian movies and so forth. Not often the most artistic out there. We're often behind the curve, kind of buffering. And that's the case with postmodernism. Within culture, as we talked about, postmodernism has been kind of percolating uh, since the 50s and 60s, but by and large, the church was kind of inoculated until the 1990s. We were f- busy fighting over other things. And so we we're so busy fighting that we didn't notice what was actually happening in culture. But in the 90s, you begin to see some of these assumptions bleed over into evangelicalism. And the result is that by the early aughts, you really see this start to enter into the evangelical mind. Some of you may remember there was this quote unquote conversation about the emerging church. You might've heard about guys like Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, Tony Jones, and Doug Paget. The emergent church or the emergent village or the emergent conversation was basically this group of pastors and teachers like those I just named who were really attempting to redefine Christianity by utilizing these aspects of postmodernity. And this wasn't some just small fringe thing, all right? Uh, I mean, Rob Bell was friends with Oprah, like actual friends with Oprah. That's pretty big, right? By the way, Oprah is a really good illustration of postmodernism. You get a truth, you get a truth, you get a truth, all right? That's kind of the idea there. So this conversation was smoldering in the church and it erupted on the national scene in the early aughts. This was such a big deal that at my previous church, we had an entire conference dedicated to responding to this emerging conversation, which is basically just postmodernism applied to Christianity. The problem with attempting to apply postmodern epistemology to Christianity is that it can't be applied to Christianity. It isn't like just adding a little bit of salt to enhance the flavor. It's like adding a bunch of cyanide. All right. Many of the presuppositions of postmodernism are completely antithetical to Christianity itself. Let me give you some examples of uh, where this emergent conversation led. All right. I think four, five, whatever, whatever number of things it is. Number one is the atonement. In his book, Generous Orthodoxy, Brian McLaren, which is one of the leading emergent uh, teachers, he recommends a book by Steve Chalk called The Lost Message of Jesus. And he said this, he said that that book could help save Jesus from Christianity. All right, so that's high praise. So what does Chalk say about Jesus? Here's something fun. He says, the fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside of the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind, but born by his son, then it makes a mockery to Jesus's own teaching to love your enemies and refuse to to repay evil with evil. In other words, chalk rejects not only penal substitution, but also propitiation. And he reimagines the love of God in a way that completely negates or neglects the wrath of God. And that's a huge problem. In fact, one of my heroes, D.A. Carson, 
he says of these statements, I have to say kindly, but as forcefully as I can, that to my mind, if words mean anything, both McLaren and Chalk have largely abandoned the gospel. That's the atonement. Second area, the Trinity. Doug Paget writes, the Trinity is not wrong, but it may not be the only way to understand God. I've tried to be clear so many times on this. The Trinity is not something to be believed in. It is an explanation of how God interrelates. The language of not believing in something is far too limited. It is fair to suggest that the third century version of how God relates is not the most uh, accurate in light of what we currently know. I simply suggest that the issues that were in place that caused the concept of the Trinity to be formed are no longer an issue. I'm not suggesting a lesser understanding of God or God not dwelling in Christ Jesus. I am suggesting that we not debate the Trinity. That concept did its job. Rather, we need to have Christian understanding of, of God that fits our day as well as the Trinity fit the third century. I'm not saying it is wrong, but it is not complete. No view is complete. That is why all belief is progressive. Right? Remember what postmodernism said. Truth is culturally relevant. What is true in the third century may not be true today. Truth must continue to evolve over time according to the wills of history and the whims of culture. Notice also the blurring of boundaries, the refusal to make absolute statements. That's postmodernism. A third area is the creator-creature distinction. All right, Doug Paget also says, the idea that there is a necessary distinction of matter from spirit or creation from creator is being reconsidered. All right, that's pantheism or, or, or at least panentheism. It's a rejection of the fundamental distinction between creator and creation. You might remember this. At the heart of the early Trinitarian and Christological controversies was the question of who it is that affects our salvation. In order for creation to be redeemed, it can't be by creation itself reaching upward. It has to be creator reaching down. And that demands that there be this firm and absolute distinction between creator and creation. But notice again the blurring of boundaries. That's typical of postmodern thought. Next is the gospel itself. Tony Jones says, we do not think that this, speaking of a conference or a movement, we do not think that this is about changing your worship service. We do not think this is about how you structure your staff. This is actually about changing theology. This is about our belief that theology changes. The message of the gospel changes. It's not just the method that changes. Again, the very nature of postmodernism is a suspicion of truth claims and any sort of meta-narrative, any sort of overarching worldview. So it's perfectly natural to think that when that hermeneutic is applied to Christianity, the result is an altered meta-narrative, an altered overarching story, an altered gospel uh, itself. So remember, the entire goal of postmodernism is to dismantle, to deconstruct, to dismantle creeds, to dismantle confessions and statements of faith and theologies and so forth. But the means to go about that dismantling isn't necessarily this full frontal assault, but rather I'm just asking questions. That was all the rage in the, uh, in the, uh, the odds. We aren't saying the, the, the Trinity is necessarily wrong. We're just asking questions. We aren't saying that, that creation is actually a part of God. We're just asking the question, maybe, one of the most famous examples of this type of questioning, this, uh, this deconstructive questioning, was from Rob Bell's Velvet Elvis. 
He writes, what if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry? Very Jewish name. And archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing the gospel writers threw in to appeal to the followers of Mithra and the Dionysian religious cults that were hugely popular at the time of Jesus whose gods had virgin births. All right. For Bell, that wouldn't be that bad. For the Christian, that would be devastating, right? You know, sometimes you, you, you see a loose thread on a garment and you pull it and nothing happens. It's just, it's an inch long thing and it just goes away. And then other times you pull it and it begins to unravel the whole thing, right? There's a difference there. The problem isn't that these guys were asking questions. The problem isn't that they were pulling on threads. We can, we should ask questions. The problem was the way they asked the questions and the assumptions behind the questions. They weren't pulling on this irrelevant thread. They were pulling apart the whole sweater, all right? There's a good example of this, by the way, in, uh, in scripture, the different ways that you can ask questions. It's almost Christmas time, so think of the, the, uh, the Annunciation, the Incarnation, and so forth. Think about the Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, and he appears to John the Baptist's parents and also to Mary. And what's interesting is that both Mary and Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, both of them ask questions of the angel, but both of them ask different types of questions. And as a response, both of them have different consequences. Mary asks for understanding. Zechariah asks for proof. Mary's question reveals humility and Zechariah's reveals pride. As a result, Mary is actually given an answer. And what happens to Zechariah? He's made mute, mute, right? He can't speak. So returning to the emergent church, when your questions lead to the possible conclusion that God may not actually be triune, that Mary may not have been a virgin, by the way, that also means that Jesus may not have been fully divine, that Jesus may not have actually died for our sins in our place, that Jesus may not have been risen from the dead, that the Bible Bible may not be authoritative, that God may not know or fully control the future, that overtly sinful behavior may be acceptable today. These are all things that I read by emergent authors. When those are your questions, those aren't good questions. Ironically, the charge of postmoderns is that uh, historic Christianity is arrogant with all of its theological convictions and all of its certainty. So the idea is that humility is uncertainty, right? That's kind of a postmodern virtue. And I find that ironic because I think it's actually really proud and really arrogant to question and reject God's word, right? That isn't a sign of humility. It's not a sign of humility to rebel against and reject God's word. That's pride. The humble thing is to say, I accept it. Now let me seek to understand it. That's faith seeking understanding, which is the historic view of the work of theology. Now, thankfully, this emergent conversation, this movement has kind of pretty much died out over the past 10 years. I could probably count on one hand the number of times I've thought about or heard from Tony Jones or Doug Paget. But that doesn't actually mean that postmodernism is dead. It's actually far from it. Rather, that particular expression has kind of receded, but postmodernism itself is alive and well in evangelicalism. In fact, I would say it's actually stronger than ever, right? The problem with the emergent conversation was that they tried to do too much too quickly. 
So it was really obvious that there was this concert. So it was really obvious what they were doing. And so there was this concerted effort by the church to oppose that work, right? The emergent guys bit off more than they could chew. And so the church spit them out. On the other hand, postmodernism today is much less overt. It's much more subtle. It's more clever, right? In fact, some of you may have inadvertently latched on even to some of its ideas. A couple of years ago, we wrote a blog called The Evangelical Drift. Zach wrote most of that. It's, uh, by far, it's been the most controversial blog we've ever written. We had a number of negative comments from other churches and so forth. What's interesting is that uh, anyone who's familiar with church history, anyone who's familiar with uh, historic orthodoxy and theology would read it and think, this isn't controversial at all. Unfortunately, most evangelicals don't know church history, don't know theology, so it caused a bit of an uproar, namely because it identified some cultural idols that people didn't want to cast aside. And one of the things that the blog does is highlights the prevalence of postmodernistic thinking within evangelicalism by giving a few quotes that you might have heard of, kind of a diagnostic test, things you might have read on Twitter or Facebook or maybe even heard in a sermon. Maybe you've even used some of these yourself. For example, to me, this text means, or God is telling me that this text actually means, or when someone says, well, that's just your interpretation of scripture, but I understand it differently. Or church leadership has long, uh, too long been dominated by rich, white, straight men. Or God cares especially about the poor and the oppressed, no matter how they became poor or what they will do with the resources given to them. Or same-sex attracted individuals have not felt welcome in the church, so we should not talk about how much homosexuality, uh, so we should not talk so much about how homosexuality is sinful. Or yes, we're both Christians, but I am a fill-in-the-blank Christian. I'm a female Christian, I'm a gay Christian, I'm a whatever a Christian, so you don't get where I'm coming from. Or because I fit in the same category as a person or a people group that has experienced oppression, I am qualified to speak about oppression. I'm immune to the charge of being an oppressor. And you can't speak to it because you don't belong to that group. Or that's just not my conviction without any sort of biblical reasons why your convictions are right. If you've read or you've heard any of those things, you can be fairly confident that postmodernism has influenced the person's thinking. So you've seen and heard this. Again, postmodernism isn't at the gates, it's in the camp. So what do we do with it? One of the most difficult realities about false teaching is that it generally has some kernel of truth to it, all right? It's not just completely off the wall crazy. There's often this little bitty kernel of truth that's then distorted. So think of the prosperity gospel, right? The prosperity gospel is right, for instance, about God's love and the promise of health and prosperity. That's biblical. There is health and prosperity. But what's wrong about it is that it takes what God has promised for the future and the kingdom to come and he attempts to apply that or claim that for today. The same is true of postmodernism. There are certainly aspects of postmodernism that are true. For instance, we should reject certain presuppositions of, of modernity, right? We as Christians shouldn't believe that human reason will bring about perpetual progress in human society. That's naive. Only God's kingdom brings about that renovation. We also shouldn't believe that man is inherently good like many of the Enlightenment thinkers, with the Enlightenment, there is this rejection of the historic idea of original sin. 
We also shouldn't believe that absolute philosophical certainty is possible. So we actually stand in agreement with those postmodern critiques. But that doesn't mean that we actually subscribe to postmodernism because though it gets a couple of things right, it gets so much more wrong. Yes, reason can't be our ultimate authority, but reason is better than feelings or intuitions. All right, we need revelation. We need tradition to assess our thoughts and feelings. So postmodernism is somewhat helpful in diagnosing that there's a problem, but it's terrible at prescribing a cure. In fact, the cure just ends up making things worse. It's like those old doctors used to use leeches to bleed a patient. So what should Christians do? I want to mention five things, and then hopefully we'll have time for maybe one question. But Number one, Christians should understand how dangerous this is. Right, one of the, the, the tenets of postmodernism is pluralism, the idea that no narrative is inherently better or worse than others, and that kind of thinking dooms the Christian because they're left ignorant of the profound danger of postmodernism. Make no mistake, when you reject the idea of truth, or at least obtaining truth, when you reject the idea of a meta narrative, you're rejecting scripture and you're rejecting the gospel. Glendon Thompson wrote Postmodern theology applies the hermeneutic of suspicion to scripture and consequently challenges its inspiration and coherence, endorses an unknowable God, disavows the uniqueness of Jesus' person and work, and presumes that the church's survival depends upon its ability to contextualize Christian dogma and praxis. Postmodernism is kind of like one of those weed and grass killers, right? Yes, it will get rid of the weeds, but it also gets rid of every single blade of grass and every flower in your flower bed. Remember, that's the goal of postmodernism. Its goal is to dismantle and to destroy everything. So the first thing that you can do is to recognize how dangerous this is. What's going on in our culture is not just a fight between Biden and Trump or conservatives and progressives or so forth. It is a fight over the nature of truth. The nature of whether or not there's a meta narrative, whether there's some sort of controlling idea and epistemology and so forth, all right? It's like these tectonic plates. Not postmodernism versus modernism, but postmodernism versus all of human history, the way that we conceive of truth. And those plates are moving. And so we're seeing these seismic shifts, we're feeling the earthquakes as a result of that. So recognize how dangerous that is. Second, we should repent of where we might have unwittingly imbibed some of these assumptions, right? Maybe you individually resonate with some of these ideas. Maybe you said, well, that's not what this passage means to me or whatever it might be. Some of those other phrases that reveal postmodern influence. If so, you need to repent, right? Again, postmodernism isn't just something where you can eat the meat and spit out the bone. It's like a shot of cyanide in your Kool-Aid. So you should repent where you've embraced it, whether that's intentionally or not. Third, we should be humble. One of the critiques of modernity is the air of certainty that it bred. And sometimes Christians kind of bought into that. For example, for much of the 20th century, there was this assumption that apologetics could be used to prove that God exists, or that Jesus was the son of God or whatever. And if you could only provide reasonable defense of the faith, people would be convinced, people would be convicted. What's the problem with that? What assumes that the only thing keeping someone from Christ is reason. It says that the problem is just intellectual rather than being holistic. Yes, our minds are affected by sin. It's called the noetic effects of the fall. But so are our hearts. So are our feelings. So are our wills and everything else. That's part of the meaning of total depravity. 
So there was this, at times, this ignorance and arrogance in evangelical theology. That's a shame. We should be humble. But humility doesn't mean that we abandon our convictions. Rather, we should study all the more things like church history and tradition to expose our blind spots. I have a quote by C.S. Lewis there that I think is helpful for the sake of time. I won't read it, but I'd encourage you to do so. Fourth thing we should do in light of postmodernity is we should be willing to adapt our evangelistic methods. Right? It does no good to bury our, our heads in the sand and act like we don't live in a postmodern culture. We do live in a postmodern culture. All right. When I was a kid, if I said the word God or I said the word sin, almost everyone, including unbelievers, at least knew what I meant. That's no longer the case. Right? The, the meaning of the word has changed in our context. All right. So in light of that, we need patience. We need endurance in our evangelism and discipleship. That takes time. 50 years ago, if you wanted to share the gospel with someone, you could, you could just go to their door, ring their doorbell. And what was the response inside that house? There was excitement. All right. I remember as a kid, the doorbell would ring and I'd run to the door. Who's at the door? There's this sense of profound excitement and curiosity. It's a mystery present to unwrap. But now what? Someone rings my doorbell and I hit the ground, right? I hide. I don't want to know who's at the door, all right? Culture has changed. Or likewise, 30 years ago, the phone rings and you're excited and you want to answer it. And today, every single one of us check caller ID. You don't answer an unknown call, right? Culture has changed and with it, our methods have changed. All right? Not the message, but the, mes the method must change. We have to be intentional and deliberate and patient by the way, we have the evidence of that in Scripture itself. When, when Paul ministers to Jews, he does it in a particular way. When he ministers to Gentiles, he does it in a particular way. He adapts his methods to the culture that's around him. We need to understand the times in order to know what to do. And then lastly, we need to be all the more biblically and theologically literate. All right? Falsehood, like postmodernism, feeds on ignorance. In the book of Colossians, Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And then in Ephesians, Paul says that, we, that he desires that we may, quote, no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So how do we avoid that? We avoid that by knowing God's word and by having a Christian worldview. In other words, the very thing that postmodernism is attacking. Postmodernism attacks the idea of truth and a worldview because that's the very weapon that can actually defeat it. So study the Bible and read good books and take every thought captive and then pray and trust that the gates of hell and the arrows of postmodernism won't overcome the church. Let's pray and then maybe we'll have time for one question. Father, thank you for today. I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for the reality that there is objective truth. And though we can't fully attain it, yet you have revealed yourself to us in your son. So we can know you rightly, even if not fully. So we pray that you would help us to not be taken captive. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.